And as our kids are heading back there, I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word if you have one. We're continuing our series uh, this morning called Who's Your One? Who's Your One? Considering ways that we can share the gospel with just one person in our lives. We may not all be called to preach in a public sphere or teach in a classroom or anything like that, but we all can think of one person in our lives who we can be praying for, that we can be intentional to share Jesus with, and that's what we want to be encouraging you to do in these coming weeks. We gave you cards and uh, asked you to write the name down of one person uh, that you can be praying for and be intentional to share the gospel with in these coming weeks. And if you haven't done that yet, I want to encourage you to think of that person even today, if you haven't done it yet, to write their name down and be praying for them day in and day out. Look for an opportunity to share Jesus with them. And if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. And the title of this message is What Every One Needs to Understand. What Every One. Again, tying it in with our whole series, Who's Your One? We're going to be looking today at what every one, both in terms of literally everyone, but every one person that you're trying to share Jesus with, what do they need to understand? But before we go any further, I want to pray for us and just ask the Lord to bless our time in his word together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, again, we give you praise, we give you glory, and we thank you for this day. And I pray right now that you would focus us in on your word, that you would enable our minds and our hearts to receive it. Lord, to receive it like good soil. Lord, let it plant its way. Let it be planted, Lord, in our hearts and produce a crop of good fruit that glorifies you, that it would change our lives from the inside out. Lord, I pray especially for those, God, today who perhaps for one reason or another are are burdened, Lord, on Mother's Day, that you would just take that burden off right now, Lord, that you would lift them up, that you would encourage them, Lord, be their joy, be their comfort, God. And Lord, have mercy on each one of us. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, I am as much a sinner in need of grace today as the day I was saved, Lord, as the day you saved me, Lord. And we are all in need of your mercy today. Lord, show us mercy by enlightening our minds, enlightening our hearts to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, I'm calling this message what every one needs to understand. And we're going to be in John 3. And as I was thinking about today, it's Mother's Day, and I think about songs about moms, and there's been many written over the years, but you know which one really came to my mind again and again as I think about Mother's Day? I'll sing a little line from it for you. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, my mama said. I mean, there's probably better ones than that, but that's the one that comes to my mind because when I think about moms, there's probably nobody who's more singularly responsible for teaching me about life than my mom. I've learned a lot from my dad. I've learned a lot from my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, and other members of my family. I've learned a lot from friends. I've learned a lot from teachers and other people in my life. I've learned a lot from books. But probably more than any other person in my life, my mom is probably most singularly responsible for teaching me the foundational truths of life. And that's probably true for you too, right? I mean, yes, our our family, our friends, teachers, other people play a big part in helping us learn and grow, but there's probably no person more significant in helping form the foundation of knowledge in your life than your mom. My mom taught me how to eat. 
Taught me how to, to walk, how to talk. She taught me how to drive with a lot of fear and trepidation. I failed the driving test twice before I passed it because my mom really didn't like to go out that much when I had my permit. She held on to the handlebar. That was her best friend. But it did teach me to, to learn from that and, and drive safely. Really, I, I can't think of a single person who taught me more about learning right from wrong than my mom. And, and moms function that way. Moms teach us. We, we try to learn from them. They try to teach us anyways the, the foundational truths that we need to understand to live life well. Well, there are some basic things, just like our mothers teach us basic truths about how to live life. This side of heaven and, and perhaps even how to walk with the Lord, I hope, there's basic truths that we need to understand that every single person needs to understand when it comes to living for God. When it comes to how to have eternal life. You see, we weren't created just for life on this earth. We were created to live eternally. But how do we get to experience that? Well, over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at specific stories from Jesus' earthly ministry where he had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with a single person. And we're going to see what we can learn from those encounters about how we can share Christ with others. And today we're going to see what every person needs to understand in Jesus' encounter with a man named Nicodemus. A man named Nicodemus. And we're going to see all about this in John 3. So if you would, if you have a copy of God's Word, read along with me from John chapter 3. And this is what the Word of God says to us this morning. It says, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him, that is Jesus, at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. So here's this man. He's a man of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were some of the religious leaders in Judaism in the Roman Empire at this time, and they were teachers of the law, experts in the law. And it says he was a ruler of the Jews. That meant he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest governing body of Jewish people in Palestine at that time. And he's come to Jesus. He's saying, hey, we know you're a teacher. We know you're a teacher come from God because no one could do the signs you do. So Nicodemus had seen miracles that Jesus had performed. He had also seen, just to fill you in a little bit of the context, of the fact that Jesus had just cleared the temple when people were selling animals and other things and extorting people for money instead of encouraging people to worship God. So this is what Nicodemus is talking about when he says, no one could do the signs you do unless you were sent from God. Well, how does Jesus respond? Verse 3, it says, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus has come to Jesus with an agenda, but Jesus quickly turns the tables and says, No. Nicodemus, here's what you need to know. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he or she is born again. He can... So Nicodemus replies, How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. 
So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so that the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. And the first thing we see in this text is, is that Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees. He was a ru- ruler of the Jews, and he comes to Jesus to, to talk to him, to find out more about him. Remember, as I said, as a Pharisee, he was a, a religious leader. He was one who probably grew up studying the Old Testament if not at least the first five books, possibly he had the entire Old Testament memorized word for word at some point in his life. He was one who, who knew the Bible, who should have known it well. And he was a ruler of the Jews, so he had authority, and he was coming to Jesus. We see he, that, that he comes at night. Now, part of the reason he did this was probably just to avoid the crowds and to be a little more secretive in coming to talk to Jesus But there's a little bit of a deeper meaning here. It's not just the fact that he came at that time of day, but it's also symbolic of the fact that that he was coming at night, not just to to avoid the crowds, but it's a symbol of the fact that he still lacked understanding of who Jesus was. And he wants to come. He wants to come and, and learn about Jesus. He gives high praise to Jesus. He says to him, Rabbi, Rabbi was a, a term of, of honor to teachers who were respected for, for their teaching, for their knowledge of the word of God. So for Nicodemus, who's probably an older man, to come and address Jesus by this title, and when Jesus was probably about 30 at this point in his earthly ministry, it's a, it's a high honor of respect. And he even goes further than that. He says, we know you're a teacher come from God. And these are all marks of praise but they ultimately fall short of recognizing how great Jesus is. And Jesus addresses this when he says, I'm telling you, truly I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus came thinking he was going to get to Jesus a little bit and get to find out more about him, but Jesus quickly shifts the agenda and says, here's what you need to understand. Here's what you need to understand. Nicodemus, if I can compare him to people today, 
is what I would call an almost Christian. An almost Christian. What do I mean by that? I mean he's a person who has a positive view of the Bible. He has knowledge of the Bible. He has religious knowledge. He's a moral person, has a degree of respect for Jesus, but his understanding isn't quite where it needs to be. There's a lot of people like that in the world today. Throughout much of the 20th century, church attendance was was very much a part of society, but many of the people who attended church then were doing so just because it was part of the culture. They might have had a positive view of Jesus, but did they really have a correct understanding of who he is? See, we need to understand some things this morning, folks. There's some basic truths, and the basic truths are these. They're right here in the text. First, we need to understand what it means to be born again. We need to, be, to understand what it means to be born again. This is the dominant idea in verses 1 through 8. That's what Jesus leads off with when he replies to Nicodemus. He says, truly I say to you, unless someone is born again, he or she cannot see the kingdom of God. Now there's a deeper idea, the idea of seeing the kingdom of God. But in order to see the kingdom of God, we have to be born again. Now this word again doesn't just mean for a second time, although it can include that idea. That's why Nicodemus thought it meant. He said, hey, can I go back to my mother's womb and be born a second time? I mean, obviously that's not possible, but he's missing the point. It's more than just being born a second time. It's being born from above. That's what this word translated again can also mean from above, from heaven, from the place where God dwells. In other words, born spiritually. Born spiritually anew by God's power. Jesus uses more phrases to describe what this means. He says in the next verse, he says in verse 5, truly I tell you unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's almost a word for word repeat of verse 3. And verse 3 says unless someone is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Excuse, um, uh, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The ideas are clearly the same here. And then he shortens that phrase to born of the spirit. Born again, he, he says that one more time. So clearly these ideas are, are all the same. The idea of being born again, born of the spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, being born of water and the spirit, which isn't talking about two births, but it's two ways of describing the same idea of being born again. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be born again? Well, the first thing you need to see is, before we talk about what it is, is just the fact that it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. It is imperative that we all be born again. When Jesus says in verse 7, do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born again, you is in the plural there. We don't see that in our English translations, but, it's, but you is in the plural. In other words, it's for all people. We all must be born again. Notice that twice he uses the key conjunction, unless. Unless. He says, unless, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That means it's absolutely necessary. If it doesn't happen, no seeing God's kingdom. If it doesn't happen, no entering God's kingdom. It is necessary. But secondly, it means being made new. It is being, being born again means being 
made new, being born anew, being new spiritually. It takes place in your spirit by the influence of God himself to renew you from the inside out. It's a newness of life, a newness of thinking, a newness of values and desires. And those work their way out into the way you live your life. In other words, your life is changed. This includes being made clean. That's why Jesus uses this imagery in verse 5 where he says, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, water was an image for cleansing. And part of this new birth means you've been cleansed. You've been cleansed of your sins. You've been cleansed of your way of living prior to coming to Christ. It involves a cleansing of your nature inside out. And in fact, when Jesus says that in verse 5, when he says being born of water and the Spirit, he's actually pointing back to an Old Testament scripture. Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, who was an Old Testament prophet who lived several hundred years before Christ came to the earth, Ezekiel said this, Ezekiel chapter 36 says this, it says, I will, and this is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel here. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. There again, we see the image of water and we see the Holy Spirit in close proximity. That's what Jesus is referring to here when he says you must be born of water and the Spirit. And that's also, by the way, why he tells Nicodemus, hey, you shouldn't be surprised. It's coming right out of Ezekiel. You should know this. You should know this. You shouldn't be surprised that I'm saying you have to be born again because you have to be changed from the inside out. It's not enough just to go through the motions. It's not enough to be a moral person. Your heart, your spirit, everything about you has to be changed. Why? Because everything about us has been affected by sin. Everything about us. We call this, uh, I use a buzzword, a buzz term, if you will, total depravity. What do I mean by that? I mean that we're all totally depraved in the sense that there's no part of our humanness, our thinking, our mind, our souls, our hearts, our desires, our values, that hasn't been affected by sin. We're not utterly depraved. We're not all you know, serial killers or, or murderers or anything like that. But we've all been affected by sin in every part of our being. So every part of our being, guess what, needs to be born new. It needs to be changed from the inside out. Now, this is something you can't do for yourself, folks. You can't make yourself be born just in the same way. You can't cause yourself to be born. You don't make yourself born. Somebody had to act outside of you, namely your mother and your father, had to act in order for you to be physically born. It's the same way with spiritual birth. We can't cause ourselves to be born again. God has to accomplish this. That's why Jesus uses the analogy of wind. He says, he says, the wind blows where it comes. We don't know exactly how it works. I mean, we know more about it today than obviously people did at the time Jesus said this. But, but at the end of the day, it's not something we can control ourselves, is it? It's the same way with the Holy Spirit. We can't control it. Now we can respond. We're going to see in a minute there is something we are called to do that has something to do with, with being born again. But ultimately, it's something God has to work in us. And it's clearly observable. It's clearly observable. Again, the wind. We can't see the wind itself, but we can clearly see its effects. We can feel its effects. It's the same way with being born again. 
You can't explain the actual event or, or when it happens or explain how the Spirit of God does that, but you can clearly see the effects. It's life-changing. It's supposed to change us from the inside out with new desires, new loves, new values. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we're without sin, but it means that our pattern of life has changed where we love Christ, where we love what he loves, where we want to be like him, where we want to, not just have to, obey him. Our desires are changed from the inside out. That's what it means to be born again. It's something we can see. We have a short term that, that means to be born again, and here's a word to remember. It means to be regenerated. It means to be regenerated. It means we've been generated again. We've been generated to new life. Whenever we say regenerate or regenerated, that's what we're talking about. We mean we've been born again. Now, as much as we can, just to tie this in with part of who we are as a church, we always want as much as possible to pursue regenerate church membership. That's something you'll hear me talk about a lot. In other words, that every person who actually joins the church is actually born again. Why? Because if you're a member of the church, it's, if you haven't been born again, it's, it's, it's a farce. It's a joke because you wouldn't be thinking biblically. You wouldn't be thinking under the leadership of the Spirit. You'd be still thinking under your sinful nature. We want to be regenerate. We want to be a regenerate people. We need to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. You need to know what it means. That's what it means to be born again. But wait a second. If I can't regenerate myself, what hope do I have? How can God hold me responsible? I mean, what, what can I do? Well, that's the second thing that you need to understand that where this comes in, and that's this. You need to understand what it means to believe in Jesus. You need to understand what it means to believe in Jesus. You need to understand what it means to be born again. That's something you can't do yourself. It's observable. It's something that changes you from the inside out. But again, you say, well, I, I can't make myself be born again, so what can I do? Here's the second part. You need to understand what it means to believe in Jesus. Look in verse 9. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus has just told him the need to be born again, that it's necessary, that it's something that has to happen, that it's a change from the inside out. But Nicodemus still doesn't understand. He's like, well, tell me how this works. Explain this to me. How, how can this happen to me, Jesus? And Jesus responds with another question. He says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know this? You're supposed to know the Old Testament, Nicodemus, and, and how much less, how much more for us who aren't experts at the Old Testament or the New Testament. How are we supposed to know? Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues to explain. And it, it really has to do with believing. Believing in Jesus is related to being born again. The word believe or some kind of form of the word believe occurs seven times in verses 12 through 21. And it's important that we see that. That's clearly the main idea in verses 9 through 21 is what does it mean to believe? How do we believe? Now, the overarching thing you need to understand about believing is it's not just a one-time decision. Okay, when Sometimes when we think of believing, especially if we were brought up in church and in the 20th century and, and, and what we call revivals where there was a lot of of, uh, of urging to make a decision for Christ, we might think of believing primarily in terms of a one-time decision. And yes, that's a part of it. 
But believing biblically, believing in the New Testament, when we talk about believing in Jesus, isn't just so much a one-time decision as it is a continual day-in, day-out trust in Jesus as a relationship. Just like you have a trust, hopefully, I know maybe not everybody, but, but probably most of us had a deep trust for our moms. Again, to tie it into Mother's Day, we, we trust our moms. Babies instinctually trust their mothers, unless that trust is betrayed again and again and again. Here's the thing. God's never going to betray your trust. You may think that. You may wonder that sometimes, depending on situations that happened in your life that don't make sense. But Jesus is never going to betray your trust. That's the kind of belief that we're called to have, a day in, day out, consistent trust in who he is and what he's done. It's a consistent trust And it's also inseparable from regeneration. That's how we connect it to the previous section where where Jesus has talked about the need to be born again. And then Nicodemus responds, well, how does this work, Jesus? Well, this is what he's saying. It cannot be separated from belief. Now, they're distinct. They're distinct realities. Having faith in Christ, that's another word, another term for what it means to believe, is distinct from being born again, but they're never separated. They're never separated. To be born again means to have faith in Christ, and you cannot have faith in Christ if you have not also been regenerated. They go hand in hand. Nicodemus wants to know, he wants to understand, and Jesus tells him. He he gets to the bottom of the issue when he says this. He says, truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, verse 11, and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. That's the issue. The issue is Nicodemus hasn't believed. He hasn't believed in what Jesus has said. He hasn't believed in who Jesus really is. He's got some knowledge about Jesus. He thinks he's a a good teacher. He thinks he's a, a teacher who God is working through, but he doesn't really understand fully who Jesus is. That's the issue. And then Jesus makes the issue more direct. He says, if I've told you earthly things... And earthly things refers back to everything he said about being born again because it happens in this life. Earthly things. If I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe, you're still disbelieving, how are you going to believe when I tell you more about what life is going to be like in eternity? The obvious answer is you're you're not. That's the implied answer. But Jesus still doesn't leave Nicodemus or us hanging. He keeps going. And he does that in verses 14 And 15, really 13 through 15, he says, No one has ascended to heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, if you're clever and you know your Bible, you might say, Now, wait a minute, didn't Enoch and Elijah go up to heaven in the Old Testament? Well, they were taken up to heaven, that's true. But they didn't ascend there themselves. And when Jesus says this here, this verse could really be translated, No one has ascended into heaven But only the one, the Son of Man, has descended from heaven. In other words, the emphasis is on the fact that Jesus, who existed in heaven from all of eternity as the Son of God, came to the earth as a man, and he's the only one who's ever done that. So only he is uniquely qualified to teach on heavenly realities. And that's what he's going to do. And he explains this by going to a story that Nicodemus would have known. He goes to the Old Testament. He says in verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? 
He's referring to a story in the Old Testament when Israel was in the Exodus. They were coming out of Egypt on their way to the Promised Land, and something interesting happened. comes out of Numbers chapter 21, and it says this. It says, the people, that's the people of Israel, spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on the pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. Now, we may think that was an odd way for God to work, but it's a picture of not just the people of Israel, but of all humans. See, we've all been bitten, if you will, by a snake. And that happened in the Garden of Eden when Satan appeared to Adam and Eve, our original ancestors, as a serpent and deceived them into eating of the fruit, which brought a curse on us, a problem. What was that problem? Death. And we're all subject to it. We've been subject to it ever since. So God sent his son so that when he was lifted up, he was lifted up on a cross first to pay the penalty for our sins. He was buried, but then he was lifted up again out of the tomb on the third day. He was lifted up once more when he ascended to heaven so that now when we look to him, we can be saved. That's what it means to believe in Jesus is to look to him. To look to Him to provide our deepest needs. To look to Him as the exalted Son of God. To look to Him as the only Savior. Believing means looking. Believing in Jesus means looking to Christ. By the way, folks, believing in Christ, believing in Jesus is the only way to receive His benefits. Believing in Jesus is the only way to receive the benefits that He earned from us, for us. Excuse me. Look in verse 16. Perhaps the most well-known verse in the Bible. For God loved the world in this way. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Your version, and probably the version that we know more, uh, uh, that we know more commonly is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him or whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. The emphasis is the same. What this verse teaches us is both the intensity of God's love and the manner or the means by which he showed his love to us. It shows us the intensity. He loved the world so much that he gave his son. There could be no greater gift than that, that he gave his son for us. But that's also the means by which he expressed his love to us, by giving his son. And how did he give his son? He gave his son to live the life that we should have lived, to live a perfect, sinless life as a man, so that he might be qualified to represent us as a man. He was also given to be a sacrifice. He was given to die. He came to be, uh, to tie it in with verse 15, to be lifted up on a cross in our place, to die the death we deserve to die. He came, not only that, to, to be the true Lord, to be the true Savior. He was given in all of these ways. Why was he given? Because God loved us. And why did God love us? Not because of anything in us that made us lovely or lovable, 
but because he himself, as John writes in his letter, 1 John, is love. Now, when we love other people, right, we usually love something about them. I love my wife because I thought she was a beautiful woman and she was inside and out, and I was attracted to her. We love our kids for much of the same ways. We, we find them delightful. It wasn't any beauty in us that caused God to love us. We were really marred with sin, marred with evil. It wasn't that God looked at us and thought, man, that's a beautiful man, that's a beautiful woman. I want to save them. No, he just loves. He is love. He is the standard. He is the ultimate source of true love. That's why he sent his son to save us, to save us. But here's the thing you need to see, folks. Belief is the necessary response in order to receive that love. It's those who believe who have eternal life, who escape condemnation. It's those who believe in Jesus and trust who will escape perishing. Those who don't believe will perish and miss out on eternal life. They'll suffer an eternal death in a place called hell. Whoever believes will escape condemnation and be pardoned for his or her sins. Whoever does not believe will remain under condemnation, is verse 18 makes clear. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. By the way, that's the default position for all human beings because we aren't born believing in Jesus. We're born believing in ourselves. We're born believing in, in other things. We're not born believing in Christ as we should. It's a point that we have to come to. Nobody can do it for you. You have to come to that point of trusting Christ. Unless you think this is just a one-time decision, the last thing you need to understand about believing in Christ makes it clear that it's more than just a one-time decision. Believing in Jesus means loving his light and stepping into his light. Believing in Jesus means loving the light of Christ. Look at verses 19 through 21. It says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. That is Jesus. He, he had come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. That's the default posture that human beings have towards Christ towards the light of the word, towards the light of Christ. Why? Because we love darkness. We love our evil deeds. We love the things that, that bring us joy apart from God, that are against God's design. We love to find joy in our own way. We love to find our ultimate desires, to meet our ultimate desires apart from God. That's our default position. But if we have come to a point of believing in Jesus, then that is changed, where we no longer love the darkness. Yes, we may still be tempted by it, but now we love the light. And we want to step into the light to have those things exposed. That's what light does, right? Light exposes you. It exposes your heart. It exposes your inward desires. And that's how the gospel continues to work, not just when we get saved, but all throughout our Christian life. It, it continues to expose where our hearts are far from God, where we need to become more like Christ. Believing in Jesus means loving his light, stepping into the light. As verse 21 says, verse 21, it says this, it says, anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown 
to be accomplished by God. We need to step into the light of Christ. If we truly love Christ, it means we love his light, that we step into his light and let it expose our hearts wide open before him and honestly before others too to where he can begin to deal with that and drive that darkness out of our lives, out of our hearts, out of our minds to fill us more with his light. Elsewhere, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, the eyes are the windows to the soul or to the spirit. And that's not so much that our eyes are the way by which light comes out of us, but are the means by which light comes into us. In other words, what are we looking at? 